SEC fans, welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast, coming to you from the iHeartMedia studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida, 620 AM, 95.3 FM. My name is John Christ, senior writer for Saturday Down South. His name is Connor O'Gara, national columnist for Saturday Down South. You can follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC. You can follow him at CJ O'Gara. Connor, it is incredibly difficult to believe but many teams in this league are already at the halfway point of the schedule. It seems like we just got this thing started, but we're at we're like making the turn to the back nine here. I know we say this. It seems like we say this every week after like week four, but the season is truly flying by. The fact that we're already talking about week seven is just it's incredible to think about. But yeah, we uh, we're we're at the midway point. Hard to believe. Absolutely flying by, and we think we got a pretty good handle on how the SEC is shaking out at this point. But before we discuss that, the Saturday Down South podcast is brought to you by Bud Light. The Bud Light Tailgate Tour is hitting several fantastic locations this football season, and the next stop is this Saturday in Tuscaloosa for Arkansas and Alabama. The party is taking place at the top of the strip. If you're familiar with the area, look for the entrance off Red Drew Avenue on the corner of 6th Street. The event starts at 11 a.m., nice and early, so head on over any time between 11 and kickoff, which is set for 6.15 local time. The first 100 guests are going to get a complimentary Bud Light Souvenir Cup, of course, in Alabama, crimson and white. Trust me, folks, I went to one of these things last season for Florida, Georgia, the cocktail party in Jacksonville. I can tell you from experience it is every football fan's version of heaven. It is incredibly fun. TV's everywhere showing all the games. You can play cornhole. You can play flip cup. Tons of food. And, of course, Bud Light as far as the eye can see. Bud Light is a proud supporter of the Crimson Tide. You must be 21 years of age to enter. Of course, security will be checking IDs at the door. But, again, that's the Bud Light Tailgate Tour this Saturday in Tuscaloosa for Arkansas, Alabama, off Red Drew Avenue on the corner of 6th Street. Connor, I think it's safe to say we've seen some genuine separation in the SEC right now. It seems like it's Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, and everybody else. Absolutely. I mean, how can you not think that at this point, given the fact that the SEC is down to three top 25 teams something that hasn't happened in the college football playoff era. I don't think it's crazy at all to think that it's those three and everyone else. Yeah, I was on the Feinbaum show on Tuesday, and I said on their air that there's only three games left in the SEC that might even matter. You got the cocktail party in Jacksonville, Florida, Georgia, probably determines who goes to Atlanta there. You have Georgia going to Auburn, I believe the weekend of November 11, going to have ramifications on both divisions. And then, of course, we have the Iron Bowl, with Auburn and Alabama. It's going to be at Jordan-Hare Stadium over Thanksgiving weekend. Those three games probably determines who makes it to Atlanta and going to have a huge, huge effect on who makes it to the Final Four in the college football playoff as well. Yeah, and pretty much the rest of the SEC could be turned into a hot seat bowl, it seems like. Correct. I mean, there are very few games where you look at and you say, oh, yeah, that's you know two coaches that are totally fine. I mean, maybe with the exception of, you know, like a, a Vanderbilt playing against you know, if Kentucky. you have like a Vanderbilt against a Kentucky or Mississippi State or something like that, you know, but other than that, I mean, there will be implications for every game. We don't want to say that, but you're right. And then in terms of the grand scheme of things, we're talking about three teams that have a huge lead on, on the rest of the pack, in my opinion. I mean, the point differential has just been 
absurd so far. I mean, Alabama plus 130, Georgia plus 100, Auburn plus 97 right now. I mean, that's that's through three games. I mean, that's that's insane. Those are numbers that maybe teams hope for at the end of the season in conference play. So, I mean, if you're sitting here not thinking that there are three good, there are three clearly better teams in the SEC, I don't know what you could possibly be looking at. Yeah, again, I was up at SEC Network this week in Charlotte, and I talked to some of the programming people, and this was a tough week for them. I mean, it's their business to put on television shows. You can talk about you know, how much the football actually matters, but at the end of the day, from the programmer's perspective, this is a television show, and they're looking for ratings so they can sell advertising. That's how the football world goes round. But look at this schedule. It is incredibly difficult to find games that matters. You've got the big game on CBS 330. That's Auburn and LSU, usually a fantastic game, the tale of the Tigers, but considering how LSU has looked recently, even escaping Gainesville with a win this past Saturday, probably not the sexiest matchup that the folks at CBS were hoping for. And then in terms of the ESPN games and the SEC Network games, you're talking Vandy and Ole Miss. Texas A&M at Florida is kind of interesting. Arkansas and Alabama feels like a 51-3 type of game. Same thing for Missouri at Georgia. BYU is awful, and they go into Stark Vegas. That looks like another blowout. It may not be the most interesting weekend of football. That being said, sort of the way this sport works, this might be when just the absolute nuts stuff happens. Let's hope that's the case, but going into it, it's tough to feel confident about the entertainment value. I agree with that. And, uh, you know, you you can sit here and – and, and try and predict some upsets, but you know between those three games, only one game has been decided by less than three touchdowns, and that was the Alabama-Texas A&M game, which, I mean, you could argue that Alabama was never really lost control of that game. I know Texas A&M made it close, and had I mean, that was a tremendous effort just to stay within one possession of Alabama. As I know Kevin Sumlin said that wasn't a moral victory, but in my opinion, that's about as close to a moral victory as it gets. But you're, you're, you, you just can't look at anything that those teams have done and say, yeah, we can hang around with them. We're going to make this an entertaining game. Chances are those teams are going to have games over by halftime. I mean, that's just been the case so far. Like Georgia and Alabama go into Vanderbilt, and we think Vanderbilt's defense is, you know, is solid this year and looking, you know, like they were looking like a potential top 25 team after the Kansas State win, and they just, you know, the game's over by halftime. And from an entertainment standpoint, it's just not that. And so the question I have is, can anyone sort of narrow the gap moving forward? Is anybody going to be able to, to put up a fight and say, no, we're not going to get completely dominated by these teams. We're actually going to provide something that's more than, you know, these teams just running through the conference and ultimately, you know, running the table until they play each other because we could potentially get to see this all work out. But for now, it's just those three and everyone else for the next month and a half. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. I was looking at a bunch of numbers on Wednesday when I was putting together one of our motion graphics that we do for our various social media feeds. But you know what? This is a statistic game, and you can break down the numbers any way you want to say just about anything that you want. But this is all you need to know. This is a game about scoring points and not allowing points. But scoring offense in the SEC right now, Alabama number one, 43 points a game. Auburn number two, 35.8 Georgia at number three at 35 even. But what's even more interesting than that is that scoring defense, it's the same three teams. Georgia's number one, 10 points a game allowed. Alabama number two at 10.3. Auburn number three at 13 even. 
So these three teams are scoring the most amount of points in the league. They're allowing the least amount of points in the league. Every one of their games on an average basis is a 20 or a 30 or a 40-point victory. The separation from the haves and the have-nots, that chasm seems to be widening right now. I mean, these three teams are so far out in front of everybody else. You know, it's not unusual to have a sensational offense scoring a bunch of points, but your defense has a hard time matching that production, and you give up some points here and there. Conversely, sometimes you have a terrific defense that only allows 7, 10, or 13 in a ball game, but then you have an offense that struggles and can only support you with 17, 20, or 23. And these three teams have fantastic offenses, they have fantastic defenses, and the other 11 teams in the conference really can't compete on either side of the ball right now. And even more specifically than that, these teams rank 1, 2, and 3 in the SEC in rushing offense, Alabama, Georgia, and Auburn, and then defending the run they're one two and four Kentucky's actually number three in defending the run and coincidentally those are the only four teams that have that don't have multiple losses at this point in the season so I guess it's really not a coincidence in my opinion but you know as Tony Michelle said after you know after you know Georgia destroyed Vanderbilt on Saturday you know this is what the SEC is all about you run the ball you defend the run you don't turn the ball over and you know what that's just the nature of the beast and these teams are doing it better than anyone right now and it shows in the scoreboard so who is that team you asked the question earlier and we didn't really answer it you know find me a team that can rattle the cage in the west find me a team in the east that can sort of throw a grenade on this thing it's very difficult to find one do you have any suggestions i mean i've i've been kind of banging the drum for mississippi state and i'll talk a little bit more about them but they've already gotten destroyed by georgia and auburn so i mean you can't you can't sit here and say that they're going to be able to do it. Nope. Texas A&M might be the best bet just because of how they looked against Alabama, the fact that they didn't really back down from uh, from that battle at the line of scrimmage, especially when Alabama got up three scores and the fact that they were able to, to rally back and really play a solid defensive second half, I thought. Um, but I just don't know. At this point, Texas A&M is probably the best bet just to not get blown out. Um, by those teams, but I, I, I don't know, man. This is like you could sit here and try and look at a team like Florida, and I don't even think Florida can stay in the same field as Georgia right now. I mean, they're missing tackles left and right on defense, and just you know the offensive issues are are one thing, and that's been well documented. I don't know who's going to score on on Georgia right now in in the East. That's that's the thing I keep coming back to. You could sit here and break down. You know, a team that has, you know, you can break down rivalry history and talk about all these close games that people have had with Georgia. I'm looking at 2017. I'm looking at what Georgia has been able to do throughout this entire season, going all the way back to getting a, a really solid win in South Bend that looks better and better by the week. And a, the, that you're looking at a team that's allowed 17 points through three SEC games. Who is going to score against this defense? I just, I don't, I don't know. And I, and even Auburn, I. You know Auburn is, you know, has been making tremendous strides, you know, offensively, and what they've been able to do is really impressive, and it's, you know, surpassed my expectations. But how is even Auburn going to score against Georgia? I mean, they are just relentless. I think the only thing right now that you can, and I don't, I don't think you should ever hope for injuries, but the only thing that's going to maybe give, you know, a team a glimmer of hope is a key injury right now for one of those teams, a key injury maybe at the quarterback position. Maybe, you know, one of these dominant starting tailbacks goes down. That's maybe the only thing that I think can really, you know, give some of these teams a, a chance. I mean, they're just so good right now straight up that they're, they've just been so tough to beat. And right now 
it just doesn't seem like anybody's going to be able to narrow the gap. Yeah, you never want to root for an injury just to make things interesting. Right. But, you know, as a Florida State guy, I'm the first one to tell you, you take out your starting quarterback and it can completely change a season. Things are going very, very poorly in Tallahassee. But I digress. I don't think there's another team in the West that can even come close. You got Mississippi State, Arkansas, and Ole Miss that already have two losses in conference play, which means theoretically, let's just say, you know, Alabama is the best team in the West and the one you have to shoot for, not exactly making a leap there. That would mean that one of those two teams, one of those three teams would have to beat Alabama and then still hope the Crimson Tide lose another conference game. Not very likely. Plus, Alabama has already beaten Arkansas, already beaten Ole Miss, which means the tie would have to lose three conference games for those teams to get back into contention. Clearly, that's not going to happen. Mississippi State, yes, they still have the tide on the, on the calendar. Maybe they can pull off a miracle. But again, you would need the Crimson Tide to lose another game in order to get to Atlanta. I don't think that's going to be the case. You have Texas A&M and LSU, both with one conference loss, but... No, I still see a bunch of losses for them going forward. There's some good vibrations in College Station right now. A better record than anticipated. A better performance against Alabama than people thought. But you know what? This is a 4-2 and two team that feels like it's going to be 5-4 and four or so pretty soon. You're at Gainesville. You host Mississippi State. You host Auburn. You still have to travel to Ole Miss. Who knows what happens there? Travel to Death Valley. Who knows what happens there? I still see a team that's going to lose four or five times. But in the East, I still want to give Florida a shot. And I know that sounds incredible coming from a card-carrying Seminole like myself, but there's just something about this team, despite the suspensions, despite the injuries, despite what we've seen so far, this team, the last generation or so, has found a way to get the best of Georgia at the cocktail party in Jacksonville. Don't ask me why, but they've had the inferior team probably five times in the last 15 or 20 years and still found a way to win. So I think it's possible that the Gators could still throw a monkey wrench into this thing. Now, the last thing football fans in this conference want to see is Alabama, Florida for the third time in a row in Atlanta. There isn't a chance that game is fun to watch or entertaining. And we know what the result is going to be, but I still give the Gators a fighting chance because they have a running game that is improving. They have a defense despite being Not as great as it was a year or two ago. There is some talent. Hopefully they'll get healthier. And this is a scrappy team that takes advantages when it gets some mistakes thrown thrown its way. I give the Gators a puncher's chance, although not much more than that. And I'll I'll go in a different direction. I'm throwing away history with Georgia. I'm I'm, I'm tired of talking about Georgia losing these games that they shouldn't lose. Let's look at the body. I mean, the body work has just been so impressive so far. Fantastic. I don't know, like, and that's the only thing holding people back from going all in on Georgia is that they keep coming back to these these Mark Richter teams that just always have these letdowns early in the season. And I get that, and that's what your brain is telling you to do, and it's saying, don't get too high on Georgia, don't get too high on Georgia. Until an SEC team can stay on the field with Georgia, I'm absolutely going to be through the roof on the Bulldogs right now. And I don't think Florida can stay on the field with them. I don't care what history has said. I don't care that Florida goes into the cocktail party and has all of these disadvantages and still comes up with a way to win. I think this Georgia team is so far superior than any team Florida has seen in recent years at a cocktail party that I I, I don't care. I'm discounting that right now. For me right now, when you break down this team and you break down what they're able to do at the line of scrimmage and just totally humiliate teams on the defensive side of the ball – there, there's just there's no match. There's just no match, plain and simple. I'm throwing history out the door. Georgia right now, in my opinion, is 
absolutely deserving of being this top four team and absolutely deserving of sustaining it. We talked about a team like like Clemson overcoming these narratives and showing that yeah, Clemson is a top is perennial is now perennially a top five team year in year out. Deshaun Watson, no Deshaun Watson. It's just Dabo Sweeney. And right now I think Georgia's building the same thing with Kirby Smart. And so, sorry for the little rant here, but I'm just, I feel like it's been discussed at nauseum, the fact that Georgia is just, oh, wait, we're, we're going to wait for them to, to have this, this letdown because that's what Georgia does. This Georgia team's different. And Georgia absolutely belongs in the top three conversation in the SEC. And in my opinion, the top three conversation nationally. Number one, never apologize for a good rant. That was fantastic. Number two, I don't disagree with you. And again, I've said this on air recently, uh, as, as just you know, the other day, as a matter of fact, when I was up in Charlotte, I see a different Georgia team too. And it's really easy to get trapped in this Mark Rick stuff that we saw for 15 years. Good team, not great. Sure, they'll win 10 games, but they won't win the ones that matter. They won't get to Atlanta often enough. They're not going to make the playoff, and they're not going to win a bowl game that anybody's going to remember. That narrative is there. Let's face it. That was the case for that program for the most part of a decade and a half. But I see a different Georgia team. And from what I saw even a year ago to now, it represents a 180-degree difference. Look at this Georgia team last year that would let Georgia Tech hang around, and then you lose that game. You let Nickel State hang around, and you escape by your chinny-chin-chin. You let Vanderbilt hang around, and then you lose that game because you can't convert on fourth down. Zach Cunningham comes in there and just blows you up at the line of scrimmage. I see a different team. They're facing inferior competition and blowing them off the field. They're facing what some people feel is similar competition and blowing them off the field. I see late in the fourth quarter when they're up by 20, 30, and 40 points still getting after it. Waves and waves of defenders, 11 guys flying to the football. It looks like Tuscaloosa East. That's what I keep saying. I see a defense in particular that is reminiscent of what Kirby Smart was able to do under Nick Saban all those years at Alabama. It looks like the same team. It seems like the same level of athlete, and they're just striving for this perfection week after week. We didn't see that a year ago in year one with Coach Smart. We certainly didn't see it for the most part of that 15 years with Coach Rick. I see a certain fearlessness, a certain aggressiveness, and a certain blood in the water just taste for death. They're going to finish you off. A Michael Myers trait that we didn't see from Georgia before, and I agree with you. I think this is a different red and black, and I think they are to be feared not only regionally but nationally as well. I'll say two quick things on Georgia, and then we can move on because I know SEC fans are probably sick of hearing about how great Georgia is. But real quick, DJ Shockley was the last quarterback at Georgia to start off the season 7-0. and I talked to him last week about this Georgia team. Is it different than the 2005 team that started off 7-0, and ultimately lost in the cocktail party because – he was injured. Season didn't turn out the way they hoped. Anyways, it's absolutely different, and he's seen it. He's seen these Georgia teams in the past under Mark Richt. He's seen that blood-in-the-water aspect that you talk about, and this team is absolutely different. And if a guy like that can see it, a guy that's been around the program that closely can see how different this team is to any of those in the past you know, 10, 11 years like that, that to me says a lot. Yesterday, I got on the ACC conference call, coaches teleconference call. I asked Mark Richt about the fact that this Georgia team has done all these things without him in the second year of the post-Richt era. What's been the most impressive thing about Georgia? He said the scoreboard. I look at the scores, and I'm just like, that's, that's domination. That's what champions are built of. If Mark Richt is saying that after being there for all those years and he's noticing all of these things, I think that, I, I think that you know, people that are hesitant on Georgia – should be able to say, all right, 
this team is for real. And I think that's what we can agree on at this point. If all these outside people are saying it, there might be a thing or two about Georgia. This isn't just like, oh, you know, Miami's back or, oh, a USC is back or, oh, a Texas is back. They're dominating. They're absolutely dominating. They're not winning fluke games. Let the scoreboard show itself. Miami's back. Don't get me started on that one. If you're (laughs) listening to the Saturday Down South podcast, then you know the South loves football. And you know what the South loves even more? Crystal. That's right. Crystal, home with a classic Crystal Burger. They are ready to hook you up for your tailgate. The Crystal, the one you grew up with, the one you loved in college well after midnight. Right now, it's only 79 cents all day, every day, as many as you want, 79 cents a pop. And because no tailgate is complete without wings, Crystal has you covered there as well. All wings, any wings, 49 cents each, Saturdays and Sundays, whether that's boneless or traditional, the buffalo sauce, the barbecue sauce, any wing, any flavor, just 49 cents all weekend long. Best of all, Crystal is taking care of our Saturday Down South podcast. Listeners, text SDS to 37793 right now, and you're going to get two free crystals. That's SDS to 37793 via text message. Free crystals, 79-cent crystals, 49-cent wings. I guarantee if you show up to your tailgate with a steamer pack full of crystals, you're going to be the people's champion. Stop by your local crystal today. Connor, let's move on to an entirely different subject. I really had the pleasure of sort of peeking behind the curtain in Charlotte this past week. I was fortunate to be invited and a special guest up at the Paul Feinbaum show, not only to make an in-studio appearance for the first time, which was a lot of fun, but I really had a chance to see how this operation works. From start to finish, I was there very early in the morning. I walked everybody out of the building late at night. And it wasn't just the Paul Feinbaum show. I mean, this was the office of ESPNU and SEC Network. And this is how things are made. And these SEC products on television that our listeners love to digest on a daily basis. The new show with Marcus Spears and Greg McElroy. I got a chance to see behind the scenes there, hang out in the green room, talk to Marcus, talk to some other folks. It really was an interesting, interesting experience. While it was incredibly unique, it was also not dissimilar to a lot of corporate America and just how it works. There's, you know, here's a bunch of offices and here's a bullpen with a bunch of cubicles. And here's a bunch of people at the water cooler talking about Monday night football between the bears and uh, the Vikings. It was a, it was a goofy experience, but it was a fantastic experience. I'm writing a feature about it that will run on Friday that hopefully people will enjoy, but I got to tell you, it was a lot of fun and I hope you get a chance to do something similar one of these days. Absolutely. For you, because I think a lot of SEC fans watch these shows, and I think that they don't necessarily know the, the preparation and the time that goes into this. And they think they see these people on air for, you know, they watch the Paul Feinbaum show for a few hours during the week, or they watch um, Greg McElroy and Marcus Spears do a tremendous job, and they think that ah, they just show up and they talk SEC football, they just kind of shoot it for a little bit. But it, there's a lot more that goes into it, and I'm sure that you got to see that. Was that kind of an eye-opening thing for you to sit to sit back and see that you know these guys put a lot more time into it than we probably realize? Well, I've done a lot of live TV over the years, so I've had a chance to sort of see how things operate. But each show has its own environment and sort of its own blood and how it operates. But what I found especially interesting about my experience on Feinbaum this past Tuesday is – 
Okay, I get there about 10 o'clock in the morning, and they had their pre-show production meeting that starts around 10.30 a.m. It's about a half a dozen people. Uh, Mark and John, the two producers that everyone sees on camera and everyone hears their voices on the show, they're sort of running things. But there's four or five other people who are contributing, whether it's graphics people or folks who run the board, folks who are making calls to guests and the like. Uh, Laura Rutledge was there as well because she was sort of an in-studio co-host for most of the day. So they're just sort of BSing back and forth, and they're uh, looking on the Internet and finding fun stories and checking their Twitter feed and what's worth talking about versus the day. And if they start with the, the Florida uniforms, these alternate alligator-themed uniforms. Are they awful or are they awesome? And then they want to talk about the 10-minute rant, soliloquy, whatever you want to call it, from Mike Leach, the Washington State coach, and what he said about potentially expanding the college football playoff. If you know Coach Leach, he's a must-follow. He's just an incredible guy and a lot of fun when there's a hot mic in front of him. But then about 2 o'clock, that's when we get the news out of Knoxville that there's going to be a change at quarterback. And not only is Coach Jones making the switch from Quentin Dormady to Jarrett Garantano coming out of the bye, but there's some whispers that Dormady is quote-unquote thinking about his future with the program. And all you're thinking is, oh, no, do we have another midseason quarterback transfer because a kid is taking his ball and going home because he lost a starting job? This happened around 2 o'clock. It wasn't confirmed by those guys uh, in Charlotte until about 2.15. They are live on the air for four hours. By 3 p.m., they basically wadded up what they had for the schedule, threw it away, and started fresh. And it's a completely different show than what they had originally anticipated doing. But when you tune in at 3 o'clock, you wouldn't have known the difference. It was seamless And it's incredible how flexible and nimble on their feet they have to be working in a news environment like that. And I think, too, what what people might not really understand is that you have to be willing to pivot. and You have to be willing to say, this is our news for the day. We get a lot of the time people people criticize the media in general and, you know, SEC Network and and Saturday Down South. We all get our fair share of this. And they say, why do you think this is news? Why don't you think this is news? Seeing the back end part of the of them evaluating what's important, knowing what's going to get those, you know, what's going to get viewers, what's going to get people that are going to call in. What are SEC fans talking about right now? Did you get a sense that they just had their thumb right on? The, I mean, they just knew exactly what they were going to be able to do. It wasn't like they even, you know, did they sit there and debate? Okay, is this important enough to talk about for the next half hour, or was it just like, yep, we're on board, we're ready to go? I think what was fun about it is that it wasn't unlike your typical barstool conversation you have with your buddies on a Friday night, maybe after you get together for your flag football game or something, and you go to your sponsor bar to have a couple of pops. For the most part, it was just a half a dozen people sort of shooting the breeze about what's happening. And if somebody threw out a topic and it had some traction and people had some opinions and there was a lot of good back, back and forth about it, it, it sort of made the run for the show. And there was other topics that were thrown out and they didn't really stick and no one had a whole lot to say about it. And you wadded that one up and you threw it away and you found another topic. So it was incredibly organic. It wasn't overcomplicated. They didn't overthink it. For the most part, it was just glorified spitballing. And that's how the show run is put together. But again, I've done a decent amount of live television and what's always amazing to me is just how unscripted it is. And you have these professionals like a Paul Feinbaum and a Laura Rutledge, and they can go on there and give you the impression that this is all planned and pre-programmed and they're reading off a prompter and it goes swimmingly. That's really, really not the case. 
especially in a live program, especially in a news program. It's incredible how much of this stuff comes off the top of their head. Of course, Paul comes off like a genius, like he knows absolutely every fact in the history of the SEC. Keep in mind that he's wearing an earpiece and guys like John and Mark are in his ear and you know, relaying some information here and there when necessary. But the ability to adapt, the ability to change things on the fly, it was really fun to watch. It was really fun to be a part of. And I think it's it's not that unlike just getting together with your pals. What is a fun thing to talk about? That's what they're going to translate over to the show. Did you get a new respect for, for Paul? I mean, I, I know you've worked with him in the past and you've seen him up close, but seeing him in his element, seeing him handle all these different things, did you kind of get a new new professional level of respect for for him and what he does on a daily basis well this let me share a couple things in that regard number one i mean yes he's on the air for five hours a day i mean when i do this podcast sometimes i'll record one or two in a day i make local appearances here in tampa as part of the trade we're doing here for the studio and you know what my voice will be shot after like an hour of talking and i'm scratchy the rest of the day he is live on a national broadcast 25 hours a week he has his new show on ESPN2 from 2 to 3 Eastern time. And then he has his national show, the simulcast radio and, and television, from 3 to 7. That is five hours live on the air with him driving the show. Yes, there are guests. Yes, there are callers. But he's driving the show, and it's incredibly taxing. It's incredibly taxing. On top of that, he has a little green room that's not much bigger than a generous walk-in closet. And that's where every single day, he sits down and he does a hit for Mike and Mike, or maybe he'll be buzzed by Bob Lee. They want him on outside the lines. Maybe he'll do something with Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman for first take. Just the day that I was there, he had to pre-program a conversation with Daniel Carlson that ran on his show. He had to pre-tape a conversation with Joe Tessitore, which ran during his ESPN2 show. Then he had an appearance on Mike and Mike, and then he had an appearance on first take. It's just nonstop. And he's incredibly even keel. He's incredibly comfortable in his own skin. And he never seems to complain when people ask him for this and ask him for that. This is a man who knows who he am, who he is. He's incredibly comfortable with the amount of celebrity he's gotten. He actually laughs about it. I mean, I spent time with him in Birmingham, and, and that's like being with Elvis in Memphis. I mean, he can't walk 15 feet at that Galleria in Hoover for media days without being asked for an autograph, without being asked for a photograph. And he just never gets too high, never gets too low. And the last thing on that particular topic, again, I did a lot of work with his two producers, John Hayes and Mark Kubiak. And then Laura Rutledge is someone I've known for quite some time, going back to even when she was still in school at Florida. When I contacted those three to help me get contributions for the feature story I'm going to be running Friday at Saturday Down South, all three of them got back to me with these long, detailed written responses like within an hour. And I think that speaks to the respect that Paul's colleagues have for him. If this had been other people, they might not have contributed or gotten back to me or they might have blown it off or what have you. But no, 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 no. This is Paul Feinbaum. And they know this story is about him. And they know that I'm here to spend time with him and see how his show operates. And they're going to help because he has helped them along the way. He takes a special interest in people that he likes, Laura being one of them. I'm fortunate to believe that I'm one of them. And they want to make sure that he gets the respect he deserves and they paint him the most positive light because he's earned every ounce of it. He absolutely has. And I think a lot of people outside of those who consume the SEC on a daily basis, they see Paul Feinbaum making headlines about saying something about Jim Harbaugh or calling out Clemson fans. 
and they just assume that he's another hot taker. He's another. He's like Skip Bayless at the SEC. And in my opinion, that couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, he says some things that you're not going to agree with. He says some things that are going to ruffle some feathers. And you know, you can call him an SEC homer, whatever. He works for the SEC Network. It's his job to uh, to to engage SEC fans, and he does that better than anybody in the business. I think he doesn't get enough respect just in terms of a guy who can pivot, who knows what he's talking about, who knows what he's doing, who can actually come up with a formulated point and argue it better than maybe anybody right now in college football that does what he does on the radio. And, you know, I don't know if there's anybody that's more synonymous with a conference right now um, and who has developed a brand quite like what Paul Feinbaum has. That show is, you know, something it's – it's a must-watch for, for SEC fans – and I think getting to see kind of the, the back end of that, I'm sure it has only made your appreciation increase. Yeah, part of the conversation I had is that, especially in 21st century television, everyone's just a hot take machine. And who can say the most outlandish thing that gets the most play on social media, potentially have people to tune in and watch, and therefore your advertising rates go up. But this is a man who back in the 1980s, very early 80s, after he graduated from Tennessee, his first job was working at a newspaper, and he was a reporter. And he was it was his job to dig up stories and report accordingly. And that was a long time ago, but that was the backbone of his career and helped shape him into the radio host and television personality he is today. He's not just some guy who you turn on the camera and he says crazy stuff. Sometimes you'll see that from ex-athletes and the like. But this is a guy who's been down in the trenches. He respects and has an appreciation for how the news business works because he's been a part of it. He's not just in front of a camera saying wild things and seeing who's going to react to it because it gets fancy ratings. This is a guy when you had the jet gate situation with Auburn and Bobby Petrino, you know, these decision makers, these guys who have billions in the bank and own these planes, potentially writing these eight figure checks to make these things happen. They're calling Paul for advice. They're calling Paul to ask him questions. That's the kind of power that he has. And I know that sometimes people in our line of work get accused of, well, you never played. What do you know? Look, Paul's not very impressive physically in person, and he's not going to be hes not going to be embarrassed when I say that. He's 135 pounds. He's, he's, let's face it, he wasn't a defensive tackle once upon a time like a Marcus Spears or a Booger McFarlane. But the whole you never played stuff – he can brush that by very quickly because of his experience, because the people in his Rolodex, if you scroll through his phone to see some of the real power brokers in the SEC, the actual people who spin the wheels, they're talking to Paul, and they're calling him just as often as he's calling them. And I, I have to ask you, because if you, spent, if, you, if you spent all day there, you can confirm the fact that Tammy is just like, you know, somebody's mom that's backstage that's calling with a you know, with a, a prank voice or something like that. Is, is is that correct? You would think that is the case, but I can promise you. I can kind of like George. And our, our boss is going to love when we bring up a Seinfeld reference. But when George Costanza gets uh, gets asked about Festivus because he's using that as an excuse to get out of something with uh, with his boss where he was working at the time, I think it was Mr. Kruger, and he said, "No, no, no, Festivus is all too real. Trust me, Paul's callers are all." too real i've had a chance to sort of be on the other end with a couple of them yeah you you can't fake that there's there's no script for writing up that kind of crazy it is 100 genuine and that's what makes his show so incredibly unique so incredibly fun and as you said it's it's a must listen for sec fans 
Yes, there's some stuff every now and then that makes you cringe. There's some stuff every now and then you're, when you're like, okay, guys, hit the dump button. I've had enough from Jim from Tuscaloosa for a day. But there isn't another radio program in the country like it, and that's why he's maybe the most beloved radio host in this country. Yes, you see, is better for it. I can say that. Absolutely, no question. So speaking of pivots, uh, let's get on here with our C block, and we need to make some predictions for the second half of the season. Again, we're at about the midway point. I think at the top of the league, it's sort of gone as sort of how I saw it at the beginning of the year. I had Alabama winning the West. I had Georgia winning the East. I had Auburn as the best contender in the West. I had Florida as the best contender in the East. Now, some other schools, I was dead, dead wrong. A&M is a lot better than I thought that they'd be. Arkansas is a lot worse than they'd be. And there's a couple in the East I wasn't 100% on either, but... Let's try to take a peek at the next six or seven weeks and what we think is going to happen, whether it's a school that's going to disappoint, whether it's a team that's going to play better than expected and maybe you know, knock some heads down the stretch. Maybe it's an individual achievement that we don't see coming, that you see coming down the stretch. So looking at the crystal ball for me, put on the funny hat. You tell me what you think is going to happen for the next month and a half in this conference. Well, I think first and foremost, and this is, this is going to come off boring, but um, – I don't, so I'm going to preface this by saying I don't think the SEC gets two teams in the college football playoff. I don't think that happens. Not likely. Yeah, until we see it happen, I mean, there are just so many outside factors that have to fall perfectly into place because it's not just dependent on the SEC having two undefeated teams in the SEC championship, which I actually think will happen. I actually think Georgia gets there undefeated. I think Alabama gets there undefeated. And I think that is a do-or-die game for those teams in terms of their national championship aspirations. Having said that, don't think that the SEC gets those two college football playoff teams in. I know it's a popular topic of conversation right now. The SEC has two top four teams for the first time in the college football playoff era. As somebody who has experienced this, you know, closely following the Big Ten the last few years, I can tell you that these things always have a way of working themselves out. Having two SEC teams in the college football playoff would meanly would mean leaving two Power Five conferences out of this. So you have Power Five conferences that have they all have conference championship games now. Now that the Big Twelve has a conference championship game, so you're going to say to two to two conferences, you're essentially playing for nothing in a conference championship. That wouldn't sit well, in my opinion. I don't think the committee is willing to make that kind of step yet unless we were looking at a two-loss situation with multiple conference champions. So I'm going to throw that one out there first and foremost. I don't know if that you know, puts a damper on any prediction that you have, but that's the one that I feel pretty confident about right now. Well, this isn't necessarily a prediction, but let me paint you a scenario for combating that one. And I think there is a very realistic possibility that we could get two SEC teams in the playoff, but it needs to follow this specific scenario. If there's another, I don't see another path, but this is how I see it could happen. Let's say that Auburn, Alabama is indeed for all the marbles at the Iron Bowl, Jordan-Hare Stadium. I believe that is November 25th. If Auburn wins that game and beats an right. undefeated Alabama team, you would have an Alabama team at 11-1 and that doesn't make it to Atlanta. But the previous 11 wins, going to be pretty serious, pretty impressive. The only blemish is going to be on the road to a bloodthirsty rival that at that point is probably going to be in the top five, if not ranked maybe even third or fourth. Then in the East, let's say Georgia gets it done as well. I don't think they need to be undefeated necessarily, but even with the loss, if they get to Atlanta – and then you have an Auburn-Georgia SEC championship game, which would be a rematch for a game that's going to be played on November 11th, again, in Jordan-Hare Stadium. So you would have a rematch there. 
But here's the scenario as I see it. Alabama loses to Auburn. So they're home for the SEC title game at a still very impressive 11-1. and And then you have Georgia defeats Auburn in the SEC title game. I think you can make a real solid case that both Georgia and Alabama deserve to go to the college football playoff in part because there won't be a rematch situation. You'll have Georgia making it to the playoff as the champion of the SEC, book it, they're in, maybe even as the top seed. Then you would have Alabama come in and you wouldn't have to worry about that with the selection committee saying, well, we've already seen this game before. We know what's happened. So let's say that Auburn beats Alabama in the regular season and then Auburn and Georgia is a title game and then Auburn handily beats Georgia or even wins on a last second field goal. It doesn't matter. Then you have Auburn going to the playoff again, very highly seeded. I think it's a much tougher argument for Alabama at that point because they will have just beaten them seven days prior. And then everyone in that committee can say, look, we already know that Auburn beat Alabama. We don't need to see that again. This was the problem we had in 2011. Granted, it wasn't a playoff situation, but we had the rematch with Alabama and LSU. It was a field goal battle the first time around, and it was a difficult to watch 21 to nothing garbage game the second time. They don't want to have that happen again. But if Georgia and Auburn get to the title game, Georgia wins, Alabama 11-1 on the outside in, I think it's very, very possible that Alabama and Georgia both get in. I don't know. I, I still see that as a, as a tough sell. If you're, and I understand the goal of the committee is supposed to be able to get the best four teams into the playoff field, and people are going to look at Ohio State last year not winning a conference championship, still getting in with one loss. Could Alabama potentially do the same? Yes, Alabama could potentially do the same. But until we see it, until we see the committee say, no, two Power Five conferences are not getting into the field, I just have a very tough time believing it. And it does have to, you know, a lot of things have to fall. You know, if Auburn loses one more game and doesn't lose, you know, Auburn has to be really, really, really good for the rest of the year. And I think that they will be. But I also think that things just have to fall, would have to fall so perfectly. And I do think that you would have to get another you know, two-loss conference championship team for that to even be relevant. So right now I'm selling that idea. I think that the chances of it are just so, so, so small that uh, it's tough to me. It's tough for me to, to put any faith in that idea. I think the chances are a little greater than you probably realize. And let's just take sort of the outside look of it. Look at the other Power Five conferences. I think the Big Ten, they're going to have a team in no matter what. You know, Ohio State is very good. Penn State is very good. Wisconsin is very good and not getting talked about very much. One of those teams is going to win the conference and have an incredibly good-looking resume and book it. They're going to be a part of the, the, of the Final Four. However, let's move on to the ACC. Already, it's Clemson or bust. Florida State has fallen apart. No need to rub any salt in my wounds. Florida State has completely fallen apart and isn't going anywhere. Louisville. Well, Miami. Well, Miami's undefeated, too. Yeah. Maybe uh, you can't sell Miami as a, as a team that's completely out of it if they're if they're undefeated right now. That's true, but again, I'm sort of like we have done with Georgia. I'm having a hard time just wiping away the immediate history that we've seen. This is a program. Hey, Miami's back. Hey, Miami's back. They're four and zero. They're five and zero. They're six and zero. And then they lose to North Carolina and Duke and Virginia Tech three straight weeks, and they just completely fall apart. I've seen it way too many times. I also find it very very ironic that. Mark Richt couldn't get Georgia over the hump, but now he's at Miami and he's going to get the Hurricanes over the hump? That seems strange to me, considering that Georgia has 10 times the resources that Miami does. So I'm not buying that. Hurts too. Yeah, it, I'll that, say that. That's true. But yeah, I, again, I don't 
could Miami make some sort of magical undefeated run? I suppose it's possible, but I would be incredibly, incredibly surprised. I believe all of the ACC's eggs are in Clemson's basket right now. As far as the Big 12 is concerned, TCU is probably the only shot. We know that the Big 12 is their fifth on the list of Power 5 conferences, no matter how you slice it. Oklahoma has a really, really ugly loss. Oklahoma State has lost as well. And there's no way a one-loss Big 12 champ is going to make it unless there's complete chaos in the other conferences across the country. I don't see that. This is a good look. Wait, wait, wait. Rewind, rewind. Why can't a one-loss Big 12 champion make it? They have a conference championship game this year. They do. But, again, you're talking about this is the fifth of the five power conferences, and it's not even close. There's just not enough respect. There's just, and this is a TCU team that's going to have, you know, tell me, tell me they're out of conference schedule. I think they, they're, they won at Arkansas. They I think they're, yeah, I think their most notable out of conference game is Arkansas, which they played at a neutral site. And this is an Arkansas game. By the time we get to November, the, the Hogs are probably going to be about five and seven this year. So don't chalk that up as some sort of nice win because they won it's at Arkansas, though. I mean, that's not like it. They, they went to an SEC team and beat them at on their home field. I don't think that's, and I don't think, you know, the fact that they went to Oklahoma State and won there, I think the fact that they beat West Virginia recently, I think they're going to have a really solid resume going into the college football playoff. Not to, sorry, not to interrupt. I just don't buy the notion that a one-loss Big 12 team is out of it because of the brand. The SEC is the, is the conference that's sitting here with three top 25 teams in the middle of the season. Even the Big 12 has more than that. Every other Power 5 conference has more more teams in the top 25 than the SEC. Do they have three teams as good as the SEC? Maybe not. But in terms of like conference strength, I just don't know that that's an argument I can buy right now. That may be true, but one thing we always forget, and cynics like me love to bring it up, is that, yes, you want to get the four best teams into the playoff, and that is ultimately what the goal of the committee is. But this is a television show. It is their job to get the highest ratings possible and the games that people will tune in to watch. And who are people going to tune in to watch? A 12-1 and TCU team that won the Big 12 or an 11-1 and Alabama team that, yeah, didn't make it to Atlanta, but it's Alabama, and that is the brand name in college football. Who's going to turn on more television sets? And do people who run these television networks really care if it's 100% fair who makes it to these games? I don't think they do. Of course, you can't just pull in a two-loss Alabama because you know that they'll draw ratings. You can't do anything like that. But if you're splitting hairs here, a one-loss TCU, let's face it, you know, that's a small private school. If it was Texas, okay. If it was Texas A&M, one thing. But this is TCU here. Yes, they've had some nice success the last decade or so, but it's not a national brand. They're not going to turn on TV sets, and casual fans are not going to want to watch. So if the Horned Frogs run the table 13-0, win the Big 12, absolutely. Book them for the Final Four. But with one loss, I don't think they can get in. I don't think Oklahoma can get in with one loss because the loss was so awful against Iowa State. Oklahoma State sort of has a similar situation. One loss, I don't know if they'll have the resume, so... The Big 12, I, again, I, I feel it's like the ACC. Yes, I'm discounting Miami and their undefeated run right now. And yes, I'm discounting a potentially one-loss TCU. I think Clemson only gets in out of the ACC. Zero or one loss, they'll probably get, get in as the defending national champion. But TCU better run the table or the Big 12 is going to be left out for the third time in four years. I'm going to have to uh, get old takes exposed then on your on your claim that Oklahoma is already out of it because of the one loss. Keep in mind, Ohio State lost early in the season at home to Cincinnati, not a Power 5 team, still made it in the college football playoff. You can argue whether or not they deserve to be in the college football playoff, but they were still alive, and Oklahoma is going to get a chance to potentially win out, potentially pick up a couple nice more wins, and make a run 
we can move on. But I'll, I'll, I'll let them know. I'm going to say, hey, Saturday, JC, let's call them out if and when Oklahoma makes it to the college football playoff. Just saying. Not saying they will, but just going to be a, make them aware. going to put you on the radar. Well, make sure when you get in touch with the folks at Old Takes Exposed, by the way, just phenomenal, phenomenal information on Twitter. Oh, Lots it. of fun. Lots of fun. But ask them the last time that they felt the need to pull me out for exposing a bad take. Ask them that. And they'll answer is never because I don't have any bad takes. I know what the hell I'm talking about, son. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. All right. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> so, and you know what? The, the Pac-12 as well. I worry about the Pac-12. I think that it's a solid conference. It's certainly, it's fairly balanced. A lot of teams can beat a lot of teams. I know you're much, much higher on Washington than I am, but that's another conference where if you have a champion with a loss or two, you might have trouble getting in. The Pac-12 has been left out before. So I don't think it would be completely out of left field to have two SEC teams get in. That being said, I do think it needs to follow that specific formula. You have to have Alabama out. You have to have Georgia win the title game. That's the best resume for the SEC to get in. Any other scenario is probably not going to happen. But with those specific teams and what the other Power 5 conferences are doing, save the Big Ten, which I think is in no question about it, I think it's possible we can get two from the SEC. I'm going to hold you to that. That's, that's, a, that's, that's a very tough thing to to have fall in the, you know, to have fall, to have all those pieces just kind of work out. But I don't know. Only time's going to tell. This argument's going to change every single week, too. So of course. I mean, we could sit here and try and forecast now, but that's the beauty of week seven predictions is that we could sit here and, uh, and, tr- and try and forecast the rest of the season that we feel like we have figured out. But ultimately, we got an entire another season to, an entire half of a season to determine the, you know, the, the way that this whole thing is going to shake out. All right, give me some individual achievements that you want to predict for the second half. I know there's some guys that you solidify, whether it's offense or defense, guys you think are going to be sensational down the stretch, maybe a couple of players who disappoint. Again, let's go back to the crystal ball here for some individual guys, some achievements you see happening before we get uh, to Thanksgiving. I'm going to say Shea Patterson breaks the SEC passing record. I'm on board with that. Tim Couch has had it since 1998. Even after games against Alabama, and Auburn, he is still on pace for four for four thousand three hundred yards. That would break Tim Couch's record. I, I just think that Ole Miss's defense is just so horrible. They don't want to run the ball. I think that he's going to have to throw the ball a billion times a game, just as he's already done through five weeks. I see him as putting up a guy that's going to be able to put up big numbers. Do I think Ole Miss is going to win a lot of games? No, but I think he's definitely going to break the SEC passing record. I am holding holding steady on that. Now, I I wrote something similar to that earlier just because the way this team is constituted, they need him to throw the ball. They positively can't run it anywhere. They're certainly going to be trailing in a lot of second halves. So it's going to be Shea Patterson chucking it and chucking it and chucking it. And also, this young man wants to be out there. Even in that Alabama game, he's getting destroyed 66-3. to He doesn't want to be taken out. He wants to get as many reps as possible because he knows that's going to make him a better quarterback down the road. And it seems like Coach Luke is okay with that, especially because he's so nimble in the pocket. It's impossible to get a clean shot on that guy. So I don't anticipate any kind of injury. But here's a prediction I'm going to throw out there. I'm going to stay at the quarterback position And I'm going to go with Jalen Hurts, who's by far the best quarterback in the division. Not the most complete quarterback in the SEC, but he's the best in terms of what he does and his effectiveness. He has zero turnovers right now. 
zero turnovers halfway through the schedule. I'm going to go out there and say that Jalen Hurts has no more than one turnover the entire season. I don't think this is a fluke. I really don't. He is so protective of the football. He's so elusive with the way he runs. So many of his runs are toward the boundary. When he pushes the edge and gets outside the defensive end, turns inside those defensive backs. So he doesn't get hit very much. What you see from Jalen Hurts a lot is him breaking contain, turning the edge, getting what he can, and then running out of bounds. So he doesn't get subjected to a lot of big hits. He doesn't get sacked very much. He's got a very good offensive line. So I don't see defensive ends crushing him from behind, getting those strip sacks where the ball goes flying. I don't know if the kid's going to fumble the ball just with the way he plays. And in terms of this passing game, it's not that different from what we saw a year ago. Three quarters of his passes are determined at or behind the line of scrimmage with quick screens and bubbles and the like. And then he'll take his shots down the field once or twice a quarter or so. They're not very high percentage. He doesn't hit very often, but that's the way this offense runs. It's pre-programmed throws behind the line of scrimmage. Let your athletes do what they do. And then once or twice a quarter, run a boot, run a waggle, get a rollout, and try to get a double move from a Calvin Ridley, a deep post, a deep corner, maybe a four verticals type of thing, and find a guy who can be in one-on-one. But just the way he plays the position, it's very low risk. It's not He's not put in a position where he needs to throw the ball liberally, where he needs to chuck it 30 or 40 times a game, where he needs to move the ball down the field you know, 10, 15, 20 yards a pot with an intermediate passing game. He doesn't have to do that because the running game is so good and the defense is so good. So this is a ball protection offense that will take its shots now and then. He's a better passer than he was a year ago. And just the way he plays, I don't think he's going to turn it over. I gave him one turnover for the entire season. Wow. I, and I, I'm on board with, with you on, on the, the Jalen Hurts bandwagon I, I don't really think it's a bandwagon because i think it took off last year he's still underappreciated nationally he still is he's so he really is i think he deserves to be in the heisman trophy discussion i mean i've been putting him at number one in my quarterback rankings every week except one when nick fitzgerald dominated lsu that was the only time that i dropped jalen hurts you know quickly moved him back up to number one of course but i mean you're looking at a guy that hasn't thrown an interception in nine games dating back to the iron bowl last year like I just don't think people really appreciate how efficient he is and how smart he is with the football. I mean, the goal, you know, people can sit here and try and digest his passing numbers and his passer rating and all this stuff, but you want your quarterback to be a guy who who can win you games, he doesn't make mistakes, and he just knows what he's doing with the ball. You feel confident with the game in his hands. And there's nobody I'd rather have in the SEC under center than Jalen Hurts. I mean, it's as simple as that. The guy just knows how how to make plays. He knows when the running lanes are there. He knows when they're not. I mean, this is a kid who's just understanding the game more and more. We're seeing it week in, week out. Is he going to put up those monster passing game numbers? No. But I really don't think that he needs to to, to do exactly what you said that Alabama needs him to do. I'm, I'm all on board having Jalen Hurts, you know, have I, I think maybe if I was predicting, I'd say maybe three, four turnovers on the season. And even then, I, I just don't know when, when those are going to come. Um, yeah, no, I'm all on board with that. I think that's a, a fair thing to say at this point. Yeah, I think it's impossible to go an entire season without a turnover playing that position. So I'm going to give him one. I don't think anybody will begrudge me for giving him one, but I think that'll be it. But uh, last topic for the prediction part of the show, we have to spin it to the coaches, of course. Mm-hmm. 
who's going to be the first coach that gets canned? There are some very, very hot seats in the SEC. There are some other ones that are warming up significantly. There are a lot of guys who are in trouble, a lot of them. I don't know if anybody's going to get ejected midseason. I think it's inevitable we're going to get some changes once we get to December or so. But tell me the first coach you think who, go, who goes, and do you see anybody midseason being asked to clear out his office? It's going to be Butch, in my opinion. I think that's still what we're looking at. I think he, I think he does win this weekend, and I think he avoids getting fired. But I, I picture him losing to Kentucky and not having his job after that. That's the scenario that keeps playing out in my mind. I don't think it's fair to uh, fire a coach for losing to Alabama. I don't think that that's going to happen. I don't think anybody's going into that saying this is a must-win for you to keep your job. So I think that he does win this weekend. I think they get killed at Alabama, and I think that they lose to Kentucky, and that's ultimately his his last straw. I talked to um, yesterday. I talked to Jason Swain uh, for a podcast. By the way, you should go download that right now if you're listening to this as well. Plug alert. Uh, plug. Yeah, plug part. Um, and you know, he basically said, "Yeah, I think I think that he's coaching for his job this weekend. I think that uh, this is a, a guy who right now is just kind of on his last straw, and it's the expectation level. He just doesn't seem to fully grasp the concept of expectations, and that winning eight games and going to a mediocre bowl game just isn't the standard at Tennessee. And right now, um, he'd be lucky to be sniffing a middle a middle of the pack bowl game. That's that's the situation Tennessee is in right now." I just can't see a scenario in which Butch makes it out of this season. You know, I'm actually going to disagree with that. Now, I'm certainly not going to say that Butch Jones is on comfortable ground. He's clearly not. He's gone from maybe the third hottest seat in the league at the beginning of the season to well ahead of everybody else. But I do not see him getting ejected before the end of the year. Do I see him losing to South Carolina and getting pink slipped right away? I don't see that. They're coming off a bye week, and they went into that bye week playing about as poorly and having as much negativity as around that program as you could. If there was a chance to do it, there was a chance to do it then. Get an interim guy in there and start your search. They didn't do that. So I don't think that Butch is going to be gone midseason. He might be the first guy to go at the end of the season, but I said this on Feinbaum on Tuesday. What people are not taking into account with the coaching stuff just yet is the way National Signing Day is now different. Remember, we have an early signing period for the first time this year in December. We don't have to wait until that first Wednesday in February to get those John Hancocks on those dotted lines. And say what you will about Coach Jones, he has recruited pretty well. His class for 2018 is very highly ranked, and even though they played so poorly the last couple of weeks, there hasn't been a rash of decommitments from Rocky Top that scrolls through your Twitter feed. That has not been the case. So one way or another, kids want to play for him, and I think ejecting Coach Jones after a loss, you're going to lose half of your recruiting class. Maybe that's a necessary evil, but I think that's one thing that's going to keep him on semi-solid ground at least for the next month and a half. Now, once the season's over, all bets are off, but I don't think we're going to have anybody mid-season asked to go. End of the season, you'll probably get two or three. Wow. So, But uh, that kind of contradicts your, your point then again about the early signing period. And I've been referencing this with every coaching hot seat that I've been talking about is that these decisions are going to have to get made sooner, in my opinion, and we are going to be looking at coaches that could potentially be out of a job in November. And, you know, we've talked about Kevin Sumlin being in that situation, potentially Butch Jones, of course, even Barry Odom, a guy who didn't necessarily have high expectations coming into the season. But if you're looking at empty stadiums and SEC blowouts week in, week out, then they could potentially make a change over there too. So, 
I, I think that we are going to see these, these firings in, in November. I don't think that you're going to have programs that are going to be willing to sit there and, and twiddle their thumbs until the middle of December when they know that they have an early signing period that's going to be really pivotal in the way that these things shake out. And while I do think that that makes an impact, I don't think that necessarily um, – I don't think that a lot of programs are going to say, hey, you've got a top 15 class right now. We can't fire you because of that top 15 class. I mean, look at Les Miles last year. I mean, look at you know Kirby Smart coming into Georgia and inheriting that class that Mark Richt had built. I think you've seen teams that are willing to say, okay, if we bring in the right guy, we feel confident that we can sustain these classes. We don't want to have a coach keep – we don't want to necessarily keep a coach that we don't think is the right fit just because he has some, you know, some talented guys coming in. It doesn't make a lot of a difference if you have these, these talented guys come in if you don't have the right coach. So that's maybe the counterpoint I would make to the notion that no SEC coach is going to get fired in the middle of the season. That would be a surprise at this point, though. I absolutely think that would be a surprise. Yeah, I see your point. Uh, I guess the final thing I have to say about this before we head on out the door is if you did eject your coach in the midseason before this December signing day, that's like a big six or seven week window toward the end of the season where you don't have anybody in place and you're keeping in a flow with an interim coach. You can't really get your, your search going till the end of the year. So all the other coaches in America sort of know where they stand. If you get rid of coach Jones on, you know, October 17th, you're not going to have a new guy in place by October 20th. And if you do, it's not going to be a sexy name that everybody wants. However, if you wait till the end of the season, you get through Thanksgiving no matter what happens in that final game against Vanderbilt. Theoretically, you could fire a Coach Jones on, let's say, November 26th, which is the day after the final regular season game. You might be able to have a big, sexy, fancy, expensive new hire in place by October, I'm sorry, November 28th or 9th. Maybe you have a guy in a day or two because you can throw the money around and you have a better sense of who's available. So that's a shorter window to potentially lose commitments to other places. And you can have a new coach come in, contact those guys, not unlike Kirby Smart did in the post-Mark Richt situation, and hang on to that class. If you make it six or seven weeks in between, that's when all hell can break loose and you're going to lose some kids. If it's only a couple of days, I think you can keep the ship afloat from a recruiting perspective. That's my last yeah. thought on that. Maybe you feel differently. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, gonna be, it's just going to be really interesting to, to see the, the way that this impacts uh, recruiting and coaching. We just don't know at this point. We don't know how many recruits are going to sign early, and we don't know how you know quick athletic directors are going to pull the trigger on a coach with this new signing day in place. This year is going to be a really good indicator of of all those factors being put into play, and you know how it's going to impact programs like like a Tennessee, um, maybe even like a, an Arkansas or something like that. We just don't know. Connor, we got to bounce. Tremendous work as always. Uh- do it next time soon. Hey, I'm going to go get some leadership reps in. You do that. We can always get more of those. That's Connor O'Gara. Remember to follow him on Twitter at CJ O'Gara. You can also follow me at Saturday JC. And thank you for listening to the Saturday Down South podcast. Special thanks to our friends at WDAE in Tampa and our sponsors, Bud Light and Crystal. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcast can be found. Be sure to give the show a rating as well. My name is John Christ, and for all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.